Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. This week, we're going to finish up with part two of Chris's dissertation, the Chrisertation, if you will. He's going to talk us through basically what the foreign worker program was and what it was to be forced labor in Germany. So there's a broad spectrum of experience there. You've got people who were brought on contract and then kept forcibly to remain as workers. There were people who were just picked up and enslaved from parts of Russia and Eastern Europe, brought over entirely against their will, rather than the sort of bait and switch model that occurred with a lot of people from other parts of Europe. All of that falls under the general term of unfree labor. So part of it's slave labor, part of it's contract labor that's kind of been stiffed. But of course, I'm just going to refer to it under the broad term slave labor. And Chris is going to take us through all of the different nuances of what the program was and what it meant to be an unfree worker under the Nazis. That's enough for me though. So without further ado, we pick up with part two, our interview with Chris Osmar about his latest research. At this point, we are in Nazi Germany. The second world war has started. We have the labor shortage problem. What is the foreign worker program? The foreign worker program was a project to bring in labor from outside the Reich to meet the needs of the war economy. That was its principal purpose was economic, but it brought with it some other problems. There was question about the danger that foreigners posed to the German people, particularly a really high level of anxiety about relationships between foreigners and German women, that the German blood would be polluted by these outsiders. So at least up through 1943, uh, that was the big issue, is trying to keep Germans and foreigners separate as far as possible. but also this this whole question of how do you, how do you use this program to bring the people closer to the Nazi worldview but things started to change after the the failure at Stalingrad so the response to the setbacks at the front uh, was to institute the total war drive and uh, the, the total war drive uh, included things like encouraging women to enter the workforce. And 
the total war drive is also correlated with an effort to change the position of the regime as a whole vis-a-vis foreign workers. Whereas previously, the whole project had been very heavily laden with ideas about race and about making sure that the foreigner was subordinate. In 1943, when Goebbels starts trying to just wring every last bit of value out of the system, uh, he repositioned the propaganda line on foreigners, trying to present them as allies in a fight against Bolshevism rather than as subhumans. The thing is that just as Goebbels was making his transition and uh, and shifting from using foreigners as a means to prop up German morale by showing them the benefits of living in a Nazified society, as he was shifting from that to presenting foreigners as you know, allies, not necessarily equals, but people that were that were themselves valuable, allied propaganda started to push in the opposite direction. So in 43, the strategic bombing campaign uh, was ramping up. This was the year of the Battle of the Ruhr, the major campaign to bomb the, the Ruhr region. Um, strategic bombing aimed to break the German economy and degrade German morale. Allied agitation propaganda was trying to achieve the same goals in the way it presented foreign workers. They tried to encourage foreign workers to engage in acts of sabotage, to organize resistance, and leave the workplace, the kinds of things that would damage the German economy. But they also tried to attack German morale. And uh, the OSS, in considering this, this question of what should propaganda look like, uh, what's the purpose of it when we point it at Germany and talk about foreign workers, the OSS says that a goal should be to sow hatred between the foreigners and the Germans because that will damage German morale. If Germans feel like the foreigners don't belong there, that they're dangerous, that it's because of the foreigners that, say, your husband is off at the front and not at home working, that that would make the Germans, the German people, less willing to go on fighting the war. So these two shifts happen at the same time. And just as Goebbels stops pushing the line that foreigners are subhumans, Allied agitation propaganda kind of starts pushing that line. Uh, there are even cases where they try to make Germans feel you know, less than for working at the same job as a foreigner. So Allied, Allied propaganda was actively using Nazi ideas about race to try to make German civilians resent the foreigners around them. And in this climate, the war has turned and the Allies are starting to try and organize foreigners and change the way that Germans look at foreigners. The perception of the threat that foreign workers posed 
began to transform as well. Whereas before, the big danger was to the German race, to German blood. Now, the danger was to the war effort itself. There was fear that the foreigners were going to start organizing, that they were going to rise up in a revolt, that they were going to sabotage production, that they were dangerous. And this new climate prompted security forces, so the police, the Gestapo, the order police, and also industrial security, so so private firms who run their own you know, guard contingents in, in the labor camps and that kind of thing. They start cooperating with each other more and change the way they think about threats that could be emanating from the foreign population and begin to militarize their policing, that there are more frequent you know, raids on labor camps looking for contraband. There is increasing preparation for a revolt, like drills and, and whatnot, the development of protocol uh, for what to do um, if there is an uprising, protocol for what to do when the Western invasion begins, because everybody knows that the Western invasion is coming. They don't know when, but it's coming. And the security forces believe that when the Allies land in the West, that that could prompt a, an uprising of foreigners. Uh, so they were drilling for this situation. Uh, there were steps in place for what do you do once the invasion starts? Okay, on hour one, we're going to send people out, police, uh, to the labor camps and check everything out and report back and then go back 24 hours later and, and look again. So this was a, a shift in what was possible, a shift in the way that the police and industrial security were thinking about what might happen, but it wasn't a big change in the actual treatment of foreign workers on the ground. One thing that did change, though, uh, was the place of concentration camps in the system of punishing foreign labor. So a critical moment I think here is February of 1944. The RSHA, the Reich Security Main Office, the, the entity that uh, controlled the police and the SD and all that, their central card file for all of the foreigners was destroyed in an air raid. And this effectively blinded them for identifying foreigners who weren't carrying any papers. And this was seen as a vulnerability that the allies could insert agents, you drop them in by parachute, and then they'll just claim that they lost their documents, that they were from such and such a workplace. And then if you were to just let them go back to that workplace, they're gonna start organizing. So the solution uh, that they come up with is that any Ostarbeiter, uh, Soviet, who is found away from the workplace without papers will go to a concentration camp. And any other foreigner, not a, a Soviet worker, will go to a work education camp. And if their identity cannot be ascertained, then they will go to a concentration camp. 
So at this point, as the previous techniques of control have been compromised by the war, you turn your attention to the work education camp. To start off, what were they? Uh, the, the work education camps were institutions that were uh, originally developed to uh, discipline work-shy Germans, that you would bring a worker who wasn't living to up to whatever expectations to a camp where the conditions were very miserable. Kaltenbrunner compared them to the concentration camps and said the work education camps are actually worse. It would be disciplined through a short, sharp sentence, usually 56 days, sometimes shorter, not usually not longer. Uh, and then you'd return to the workplace. Well, though originally these were to be institutions for Germans, they were quickly filled up with foreign workers. So the, the work education camps would be a mechanism for keeping the foreign workers in line. And a really important part of the work education camp system is that once the inmate had served their sentence, which usually wasn't that long, they would be sent back to their previous workplace. So you can imagine what the effect might be on that person's coworkers when they come back from the work education camp. They've been underfed for some time. Uh, they've been worked even harder than usual, uh, often put through humiliating uh, rituals. This would have an impression on the other people in the workplace. And in this way, the work education camps had an influence outside of the individuals that were run through the system. It was a way to discipline everybody. And up through the beginning of 1944, the work education camps were the place where foreign workers who had some kind of infraction against the system usually were sent. But this started to change after the destruction of that card file and uh, the development of these new policies that any foreigner found without identification should be sent to a concentration camp. From that point on, the concentration camps were at least as common a destination for foreigners who had been rounded up for one reason or another to wind up as in as were the work education camps. And I suggest that it was this influx of foreigners that ballooned the concentration camp population uh, from 250,000 some thousand at the beginning of 1944 to uh, over 700,000 by the end of the war. How so? Well, because they we're talking about and here here numbers are important. Speer says 30 to 40,000 foreigners were being incorporated into the concentration camp system every month. If you consider what the population was at the beginning of 1944, uh, 250,000, we're talking about a 10% expansion of the population every month. So most of the people in the concentration camps 
or a, a very large number of the people in the concentration camps at the end of the war who had not been there in 1942 were these foreign workers. Now, there was something like 110,000 Hungarian Jews who were also incorporated into the concentration camp system during this period. Uh, so that that's a large part of that 500,000 person increase. But all the same, the concentration camps became more and more a place populated by former forced foreign laborers in 1944 and beyond. So within the context of the work education camp, you have foreign labor that has transgressed the boundaries placed upon them in some way, and they are malnourished, beaten, and overworked. Brief punishment sent back as a mechanism of social control. Then you have foreign labor that behaves and operates within the system as they should. And you kind of trace this through the lens of the air war. You're arguing here that the bunker community reflected the broader people's community, the Volksgemeinschaft. How so? Well, I mean, I first should say that that, that is not my argument, that the, the bunker community uh, as a reflection of the Volksgemeinschaft, that's been done in other places. But I'm trying to show how the place of foreign workers in the whole air raid protection system was a part of that reproduction of the Volksgemeinschaft underground in the air raid shelters. So, so the air war wasn't all one thing, right? It, it went through different phases. And, and if you lived in a particular place uh, like the Ruhr, uh, there would be stretches of months where you were experiencing regular bombing and stretches of months where the bombs were falling elsewhere. And because the the day-to-day -day experience wasn't the same when it came to air raid shelter uh, throughout the war, there were changes in the policy of what kind of protection should be afforded against air attacks, uh, who should be afforded that protection, uh, how those people would be selected. At first, when the bombing wasn't that intense. The air raid shelters had a, kind of an application system that if you didn't have a shelter at home, then you could go and, and see the person who was in charge of the applications, which was usually a party member uh, or a member of the police, uh, and make your case and they would give you a, a bunker ticket. And then uh, when the air raid sirens sounded, uh, you could go in there. And in the beginning, the air raids were so infrequent that this wasn't a big part of people's lives. And at that point, I, I don't think that you can talk about this reproduction of the people's community underground. Even Jews were allowed into the air raid shelters. But once things started to ramp up, it changed. So. I think first it's important to think about what is the air war. Uh, the air war is targeting 
German infrastructure industry. It's trying to break the German economy. Yes, but morale is also a very important component of the air war. The Allies are attacking German morale. And the bunkers are the front line in that morale war. The way that air raid shelter policy developed reflected this need to maintain German morale. So by kind of rebuilding the Nazified vision for society in this specific case, the regime hoped to preserve the German people's will to fight. So how do you do that? The function of the air raid shelters was to protect those parts of the community who needed protecting. And that meant, in the Nazi worldview, women and children and the elderly, Germans. Now, men were expected to actively fight for the protection of the women and the children by being a, an air raid warden or by fighting fires or by manning a flak gun. So because the, the place of German men in this community was fighting for the community, that's where they were expected to go. They were not expected to be in the air raid shelters. The foreigners had no place in the people's community. They weren't Germans. And they were largely denied access to air raid shelters. As the war progressed, this started to break down when there just wasn't enough space for everybody. And when the bombing was regular and intense, it broke down into a system where it was really the, the local warden, the shelter warden, who was making all the decisions on, on who would get in and who would not. Foreigners still tended to be excluded from the air raid shelters. But particularly at the very end of the war, there were some air raid shelter wardens who started letting foreigners in. And some people speculated that it might be because they were hoping that those foreigners would speak well of them after the war, because they're already starting to think about uh, what happens after the end. The foreigners who were not allowed into these public air raid shelters were generally not just left out in the open air, uh, but it was up to industry to provide the shelter for their own workers in the labor camps. And these shelters tended to be slit trenches. So we're talking about a kind of a canal dug through the ground, usually covered at the top. They did provide protection against shrapnel, but so they, they were splinter proof, but they couldn't sustain a direct hit. So the foreigners living in these slit trenches during the air attacks were more vulnerable than the Germans. And what, what I suggest is that because it was up to industry to decide what kind of protection the foreigners were going to get, they made an economic calculation, how best to deploy their resources and uh, came to the conclusion that while they did not want to lose any of their workers, foreign or German, 
the foreigners were somewhat expendable. It was not worth diverting too many resources in order to build up the air raid shelters in the camps. What they did do, though, is build up the air raid shelters in the workplace. And this had an interesting effect of encouraging the foreigners to go to work. Because if they were there, when the bombers showed up, then they could count on pretty decent protection. Whereas if they were back home shirking, they would be more vulnerable. Hmm. Interesting. So we're starting to get into some of what I find to be your most exciting arguments, though as your defense proved, what one finds most interesting rather depends on what questions one brings to the table. But uh, as the context of the war changes, the ways that security forces think about foreign workers shift to match the altered circumstances. What was the German way of irregular warfare? And how is this related to this phenomenon? All right. So I've talked about the colonial precedent for the labor control regime in Germany already. That was how the Nazis hoped to deal with the good native, the one who was subservient and was going to obey the rules and produce. But there's the question of what do you do with the bad native, the worker who resists the system of domination in one way or another. And the model that was used to approach uh, these rebellious foreigners came from the German experience of irregular warfare. And I think that there is a very particular German narrative for irregular warfare that came out of the colonies and persisted. It's kind of a, a, a four-act play. This is how you expect that the whole thing is going to play out in a, in a regular warfare situation. First, there is some kind of provocation. There is the, the uprising of the native, which provokes a response from the occupier or the colonial administration uh, to stop that resistance as a police matter. Then, exposed in this way, German security forces come under attack uh, from individuals using objectionable tactics. So guerrilla warfare, fighting from the shadows, assassinations, that kind of thing. And this is a critical moment. This is the crisis that when the security forces come under attack and suffer a great loss, this is where the shift in frame of reference takes place. Whereas before, we're talking about law and order, about controlling criminal behavior as a police matter, shifting from that approach to a existential defensive struggle. 
by presenting the threat as an attack that could destroy the German administration there, they recast the whole situation uh, from one where they are the occupier, they are the dominant force, to one where they're on the defensive, where the German position or even German civilization is at stake. And in this scenario, what is justifiable changes any tactic to achieve the goal of defending German life and culture and position against this threat is valid. And the proper response is one that is violent and effective. Define effective in this context. Okay, maybe not effective. Let's change that to geared towards a specific effect without regard for the moral weight of the means. So depopulating a space in order to ensure that there's no resistance there uh, through deportation or murder, or taking property from people so that they can't give that property to a, a partisan. The kinds of behaviors that normally wouldn't be acceptable, but are now justified because of the argument that they will they will advance the cause of destroying the resistance. And this is one of your direct lines because we see this with the Herrero and the Herrero. Sorry, we see this with the Herrero and the Nama, and then again in locations like the Ukraine and the Baltic states or the Balkans when we're dealing with anti-partisan warfare. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I think this is a common thread that runs through all of these specific experiences, a inflection moment when the whole thing changes over to a no-holds-barred struggle against shadowy forces that are you know, fighting for what had been a subaltern people. But I also think that it's not just how security forces behave in these situations. And, and I guess first, before I go further, uh, I did only go through the, the, the two first steps of this German irregular warfare narrative. Uh, the, well, the, the resolution on, on the narrative is, is pretty straightforward. The overtly violent approach to resistance destroys the resistance and the crisis ends and norms return to what they had been beforehand. There's also a conceptual element to all of this. Yeah. So it's not just practice. It's not just how security forces behave in these situations. It's also how they think about these situations. And here, I think that language is important, or at the very least, language is a good avenue for accessing what the ideas were. Two important concepts emerge in the colonies and then are elaborated on and carried through uh, into the First World War and the Second World War. That's the concept of gangs and the concept of plunderers. So the people who were fighting against German security forces in all of these different theaters were often referred to as 
gangs or bandits uh, rather than as you know, partisans or uh, irregular fighters or, or some, some kind of language that would indicate a military function. Instead, the words that are used are all point towards criminality. And this is a part of reconceptualizing the motives of people who were re resisting systems of domination, that they are criminal people. It refuses to recognize uh, any, any kind of justification behind what they're doing. The other concept, plunderer, points towards people who resist the system of domination in the economic sphere. So the colonized native, the foreign worker, the prisoner of war should all be dependent upon the system that's controlling them for their livelihood, for their well-being. They shouldn't be able to get stuff anywhere else than from the German colonizer, uh, occupier, or firm owner. People who do by stealing, by engaging in black market activity, by producing something in their free time and selling that, they are often cast as plunderers. If they've come across property in a way that is not endorsed by the regime, then that is criminal. That is a form of resistance. And people who are labeled plunderers can face the death penalty for property crimes. Uh, and this, this started all the way back in, in German Southwest Africa. And these two ways of conceiving of resistance persist into the Second World War and the police and the military use these words in talking about partisan resistance. In fact, you know, once Himmler took control of the anti-partisan war in the East, he explicitly stated that the police and the Einsatzgruppen and the, the military who were fighting the partisans should stop calling them partisans because that had kind of a, a heroic feel to it. Instead, he told them, start calling them gangs, that this is Bandenbekämpfung. This is combating gangs. This is not fighting against partisans. And this criminalized resistance in the East. It applied this stigma of criminality to Eastern people. Uh, and then in the end phase, when a similar situation developed in Western Germany, this same language of gangs and plunderers is applied once again. So we finally arrive at the fall crisis of 1944. <laughs> you say the police viewed foreigners outside the system of labor control according to norms developed for regular warfare that you've just outlined. Specifically, that contingency caused both increase of violence and the later come. How so? Talk us through the situation on the Western Front. Okay. The fall crisis was the event, the crisis that prompted the shift in the frame reference, the move from norms for the home front 
to norms for the war front, uh, particularly the partisan war. But what happened was that this was the moment when the Western allies show up, that the enemy military is there, is present. Shoot. I mean, I, I want to walk through what happened, but I mean, that's, that's the important point here is that, that this is the crisis. Okay. Maybe things won't collapse at any moment, but it's sure close. And there, and the, the police want to get ready for it. The first point of contact between the allies uh, and the German police on German soil uh, was uh, at Aachen. Uh, Aachen was this is this uh, border city in Western Germany, uh, part of the West Wall, this network of unfinished defensive fortifications along the German West border. And it was also the, the point where the allies first attacked a, a city that was a German city. In mid-September of 1944, uh, they showed up and the local party administration and the police start reacting. There was a call for evacuation uh, of all of the Germans and the higher SS and police leader, uh, Gutenberger, uh, also created two new kinds of formations which were adapted from the partisan war in the east, the Kampfgruppen and the Einsatzkommandos. So the, the Kampfgruppen were order police and the Einsatzkommandos were Gestapo and border police. Gestapo leadership uh, filled out with, with the people they could get. It was these two organizations uh, that would be charged with taking care of the situation, of ensuring that evacuations were carried out, uh, of fighting against any resistance behind the front, of you know, going and fighting on the front line uh, if need be. So it was, it was largely the Kampfgruppen, the, the order police uh, detachments that were in charge of carrying out these evacuations uh, in Aachen uh, because most of the, the party had run away. It was supposed to be the party that would run the evacuations, but you know they weren't there anymore. Uh, so the, the Kampfgruppen uh, went into Aachen and started to bring out thousands of Germans, but they were also policing the foreigners uh, while they were there. And they report the arrest of foreigners uh, and plunderers. And what's interesting is that they frequently lump these two together. Sometimes they say we captured 300 plunderers, 180 of whom were foreign. Uh, other times they just say we captured 300 foreigners and plunderers. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's, it seems clear that Germans were getting labeled plunderers in this period sometimes, but the foreigners that were arrested tended to just get grouped, get lumped in uh, as plunderers. So it seems that there was an assumption that foreigners were more apt to engage in that kind of behavior. The Einsatzkommandos were not in the city. They were out roving the countryside and they started carrying out executions 
of plunderers. And there are a, a few cases that we have where we know what the process was by which they selected the people that would be executed uh, as plunderers. And the way it tended to go was that if an Einsatzkommando was called into a scene where someone's house had been ransacked, that the first place that they looked were the foreign labor camps. And when they found people in one of these labor camps nearby who had property they couldn't account for, the assumption was that they had been the ones that had done the plundering. Then there would be an interrogation process and uh, afterwards they would be executed. These executions seem to have followed on pretty quick after the arrest and interrogation. So it doesn't look like the Einsatzkommandos were applying to the Reich Security Main Office for permission to special treatment, Sonderbehandlung, execution. It looks that they did make these decisions on their own, although there was contact between the guys out in the field and the headquarters of the Einsatzkommando. So this isn't a case of a few people completely making decisions over life and death on their own, but it grows out of conversations between a few responsible people. So in the countryside, in the fall of 1944, foreigners are beginning to be subjected to lethal violence without as much control as before in greater numbers, often in mass executions. So executions for group crimes rather than individual crimes. But it was mostly on the basis of a claim of property crime, of being plunderers. In the cities, it was different. It was in the cities that the police saw what they thought to be organized resistance. And this resistance in the cities was characterized as gang activity. Cologne, in particular, was the center of this kind of activity and the place where the concept of Bendenbekämpfung, that is combating gangs in Germany, was first introduced. Uh, we, we talked about Rusnik's book on, on the podcast a long time ago. I do, I do still think that it was one of our best episodes. I agree. And unfortunately, <laughs> one of the least listened to. Yeah, well, okay. So anyone out there who hasn't listened to that one yet, uh, check it out. It's good. But in any case, I mean, we did three hours on it, so I, I don't want to beat this one to death. Uh, but oh, Cologne in the fall of 1944 is fascinating. Grand Theft Auto Cologne. Yeah. Or Gra- yeah. Grand Theft Auto End Phase. There's something to that. <laughs> what what happened was that that there were loose networks of foreigners and Germans living outside the law who were acquiring their livelihood 
by stealing things. The Gestapo saw this as concerted, organized resistance, labeled it gang activity, and began a campaign of Bendenbekämpfung. In fact, one of the Kampfgruppe were brought into the city and specifically charged with Bendenbekämpfung. So that, which is, in this context, a synonym for partisan war. So when the Gestapo started pursuing these cells of uh, foreigners and Germans that were living underground, it came to, I mean, full-on running street battles. Uh, the head of the Cologne Gestapo was shot dead in a fight with foreign gangs. And these clashes were of a scale that, I mean, you can, you can call them battles. There was one case where like 43 German police were killed in one conflict in Cologne. But the Gestapo continued to ramp up the pressure. They carried out a, a series of uh, kind of spectacle executions, mass executions uh, in the city and invited the whole population to come out. And, and there's supposed to be like a thousand people that, that showed up for these public executions to see them. Through a combination of this, this deterrent, through spectacle violence of pursuing foreigners who were outside of the apartheid system uh, as criminals uh, who could be fought without concern for the rules of war or morality. Uh, the foreigner insurgency, if you can call it that, it was, I think it was largely imagined, was destroyed, that, that the, the situation stabilized. It was once again quiet. Uh, and Shout out to Mike McConnell. Paired with <laughs> yes, uh, and paired with the stabilization of the front, uh, it ended the crisis. And after the crisis was over, the previous norms started to reemerge. So the the violence was ratcheted back down, uh, going into the winter of nineteen forty four to nineteen forty five. You compare everything that happens during the fall crisis with the treatment of foreign labor that remained compliant within the system rather than stepping outside the bounds of apartheid. So you start with the fate of the Ferreira de Camp through distinct waves of evacuations accompanying the Allied invasion. Could you start off by telling us a bit about the camp itself and the significance of what occurs in the children's ward? Okay. The Florida camp was a, a late war construction. It was privately owned, owned by Krupp. They had bought it to serve as a labor camp uh, for Ostarbeiter. But into 1944, Krupp and other firms like them had to contend with a new problem what to do with children born to Ostarbeiter women. Now, children were not regularly deported to Germany. 
Uh, I mean, very very young children were allowed to work, but I mean, we're talking about like six or seven years old. Infants were a, a liability rather than a resource, so they did not tend to be brought in. Although the Germans did make efforts to keep families together, if they could. The idea being that it, it's good for production that that it keeps keeps the the workers uh, content and pacified. Uh, so not many children of the Ostarbeiter were brought into Germany, but uh, after they had been there for a while, the uh, some of the women started to have children. Now, uh, abortion was sometimes forced upon Ostarbeiter women, but it was difficult to push one through the bureaucracy in the time between when a pregnancy was discovered and when the mother actually carried it to term. So in practice, a lot of Ostarbeiter women had babies uh, and Krupp had to figure out what to do with them. Uh, at first, uh, there had been a ward at the hospital in Essen, which held these children, but uh, pressures from uh, the bombing, Essen was getting battered in this period, uh, had made it more difficult for, for the hospital, and they wanted to relocate them. Uh, and Krupp had just bought this this camp at Voerda, so they selected one of the barracks there and turned it into a children's ward. And some of the mothers of the Ostarbeiter children were brought along to act uh, as caretakers, uh, and a German was put in charge of, of the whole uh, barrack. Well, um, given the, the, the situation in Western Germany uh, at the end of 1944, with resource pressures, with the threat of collapse, uh, which which would uh, encourage people to do a little bit of hoarding. Not a lot of not a lot of food was allocated to these children. Not enough, and they started getting weak and getting sick uh, and dying in very great numbers. Uh, this wasn't intentional murder, uh, but it's something that you could expect would happen. Uh, the administration of the camp saw what was happening, but all the same, uh, it went on. And part of the reason why Voerda was particularly nasty I mean, it was not unique by by any means. Uh, many of the the other uh, children's camps or children's wards uh, had very high mortality rates, uh, but Voerda uh, had as much as a, a seventy five percent casualty rate. The casualty rate seventy five percent of the children in the camp died. But one of the things that was unique about Voerda is that it was going through a a series of setbacks. The camp was bombed several times. The uh, 
German administrator broke her foot. She was removed. Uh, the cook was promoted to administer the children's ward. Uh, she caught diphtheria uh, after a ambulance load of very sick children were delivered. She died. And then the only German left working in the place, who had been the cook's assistant, was put in charge of this building uh, with, at this point, probably about 100 starving, sick children. She didn't know anything about how to deal with the situation. And they just went on dying. And that the Ukrainian mothers that were there, they fought for them. Like, if they... Wow, I'm getting a little choked up. If they were capable of nursing a baby and they lost theirs, they went on nursing babies. If they were capable of, of nursing two babies, they did. No, there's only so much they could do. And on top of that, the, the Voerta camp would go through a series of evacuations. Uh, and that was a common part of the end phase experience for foreigners who were still living in the camps, still going to work, that hadn't tried to break out from the system, uh, that were still living by the rules. And the evacuations didn't work out. Uh, the same pressures that made Voerda so deadly made the evacuations impractical, that not enough resources were dedicated to moving foreigners. Uh, so they did not tend to get put on trains. They usually had to walk to where they were going. Not enough personnel uh, were dedicated to guarding the evacuations uh, of foreigners. So uh, many of them would run off into uh, the countryside. And there wasn't uh, sufficient accounting for what these treks of foreigners would need once they were out on the roads uh, in order to hold together. So uh, the NSV, the, the People's Welfare Organization, was charged with establishing provisioning stations all along the evacuation routes uh, that were supposed to feed uh, the these foreign treks uh, and Germans who who had evacuated, uh, but uh, particularly by the by 1945, it is largely foreigners that are being forced to evacuate. Germans are more likely to be in flight if they were out on the land than being part of an organized evacuation. Uh, in any case. This effort to pull back the foreign workforce as the Allies approached, which aimed to both get, get dangerous, perceived, people perceived to be dangerous away from the front so they don't turn into plunderers uh, and gangs, um, and also to preserve this valuable labor resource. This project failed because there was not enough material and people to carry it out. And when the evacuation treks broke down, the foreigners who were on these treks 
had to choose whether they were going to just keep walking to the next place that they were told to go to, or if they were going to go out into the countryside and try and find a way to provide for themselves. From the police perspective, that decision to leave the evacuation route and to go out into the hills and start looking for a way to feed yourself, that is the, the transition from being a a person that's within the system uh, to being a plunderer, somebody that's getting their means of subsistence from a way other than that designed by the German master. So you make these chronological and demographic distinctions in the way that the concentration camp evacuations are managed and tightly controlled so this doesn't happen, the way that Germans are more or less left to their own devices at this point because they're not perceived as a security threat, and the way that loose organization around the evacuation of foreign workers creates the problem in the Gestapo's eyes or in the security services, more broadly speaking, in their eyes that they are most concerned about. The big reveal, though, is that mass executions don't become a regular occurrence until February 1945. Why then? What changed? Well, shoot, even in February of 1945, they were still relatively infrequent in the Ruhr. There were executions near Cologne, because that's where the front was, that's where the crisis was. But in early 1945, executions of foreigners are rare. I think that the reason why is because in January and, and somewhat in February, the Gestapo is still in the headspace that this is the home front, that they haven't transformed the norms that they're operating on. They did start to prepare organizationally for what they expected was going to come. So at the end of January, Albath, the then inspector of the security police, on his own initiative, sent around a circular saying that the way authority for ordering executions is set up is about to change. That when it comes to a foreigner, the local Gestapo head can make a decision as to whether or not they should be executed without applying to Berlin, to the Reich Security Main Office. Now, uh, once Albath promulgated this order, he also sent it to the RSHA, and they confirmed it. For reference, this is the inspector of security police who oversees security services in the area. Yeah, so he, he's overseeing the, the criminal police and, and the Gestapo. So Albath sent this order back to Berlin, and Kaltenbrunner not only confirmed it, uh, he made it a national policy. So he, uh, on February 6th, I think it was, uh, so about 10 days after uh, Albath's order, uh, Kaltenbrunner makes a national policy. Uh, but he modified it slightly. Uh, he said that in the case of Ostarbeiter, the local Gestapo head, 
can make the decision. But uh, in the case of other foreigners, that it needed to get kicked up the chain. Uh, and there was also the question of, well, what about Germans? And at this point, the higher SS and police leader, Gutenberger, is empowered with making decisions about the execution of Germans without having to communicate with the RSHA. That does it for this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast. Next time, we'll have what began as a tangent at this point in the conversation, which was very detailed digging uh, into the policy of who was in charge of what and who had the authority to do what in terms of executions at the end of the Third Reich and really starts to get into some of the outlining for our forthcoming article on just that, the different experiences and different paths of policing at the end of the Second World War. For those of you who are interested in the concept of authoritarianism more broadly and the practice and theory of law under the Nazis specifically, though, you should pay attention to the New Books Network, the German Studies channel. There will be an interview that I'm having with Jens Meyer Henrik posted over there sometime in the near future about his new book. What is it called? That's really bad if you're doing the interview. You should probably know what the book is. Remnants of the Reichstadt, an ethnography of Nazi law. It was just, it was out of sight, out of mind. You know how it goes. Anyway, that's going to be up. That's going to be posted over there. And Jens promises to be a really interesting subject for an interview. And it's an area, for those of you who listen to the podcast, you will know, is very closely aligned with everything that Chris and I are doing with the Gestapo. He's actually pushing an idea of an authoritarian rule of law and basically repurposing the concept of the dual state that was first proposed by Ernst Frenkel way back in 1941 as a way of understanding Nazi Germany as a place where some people could have one experience and other people could have this totally arbitrary separate experience. So if you're interested in all the stuff that Chris and I talk about on the podcast here, that's definitely going to be an interview that you don't want to miss. I'm going to try and get Jens to give us a snippet for the news section as well. So look forward to that in the future. But that is just an overview of what we got coming down the line here and uh, elsewhere in our project. And yeah, hopefully we will see you next time. Until then.